Okay, if you have a Bible with you, open up to Galatians chapter 6. Today, we will finish up our uh, series on Paul's letter to the Galatians. This will be my 16th message in the series that we began all the way back on uh, February 19th. As I told you, this is Paul's most passionate letter, hands down. He is fired up in writing this letter uh, to the Galatians. Paul had visited uh, the Galatians on one of his missionary journeys. And when he did, the Galatians received him and his message uh, wholeheartedly, very well. They, they embraced Paul and his message. However, after he left town, some Hebrew believers swooped in behind him to contradict Paul's message and to make false accusations against Paul. And apparently, um, it stuck. The things that they said, uh, contradicting the message of grace and the accusations they made against Paul, um, they found a place to land uh, in the Galatians' hearts. So much so, word got back to Paul, and he wrote this letter as a response uh, to those contradictions and to those accusations. And he's had enough, and, and so he's, he's writing back to them to let them know. I believe that the truths that are communicated in this letter uh, to, the, to the Galatians are as applicable today as they were the day they were written. I think that Galatians is a now word for modern day Christianity, certainly here uh, in North America. So let's, um, let's finish up this book today and uh, we'll begin our final message in the final chapter in the series, at verse 11 of chapter 6. Verse 11 says, See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Now at the time, it was common uh, to dictate letters to a scribe or to a secretary. First of all, letters were not common because writing was not common, right? It was, it was the educated, it was more the the elite who had the ability to, to write and to um, communicate in the written word. And for people like Paul, who might be sending out many letters, um, scribes were, were commonly used. And um, so all of Galatians from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 6, verse 10, were dictated. That changes at uh, chapter 6, verse 11, when he says, see what large letters I used to write in my own hand. Note that there's an exclamation point there. Still passionate. To the, to the very last of his message in this letter, he's passionate. Now, given the confrontational climate and the slew of agitators trying to discredit Paul and sabotage his message, I think the practice of ending a letter in his own hand, that was pretty wise. Not only was it a way of adding, say, a personal touch uh, to his letters, it also served to authenticate them. I would imagine if people would follow behind him on his travels to discredit his message and to make false accusations against him, might they send out, uh, you know, counterfeit letters, supposedly in his name. This helps to, you know, prevent that. Now, this, was, this is something that Paul would do commonly. It's, he did the same thing in some of his other letters. 
I won't go there now, but you can see examples of it in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 21 to 24, Colossians 4, 18, and in 2 Thessalonians 3.17, Paul would add something written in his own hand. Paul, makes specific, Paul specifically makes a point here about using large letters. I found some of the commentators that I researched uh, had an interesting take on why large letters. Um, some thought it was due to Paul's poor eyesight and he would write in large letters. Others believed that he was mocking his readers by writing in what looked like a child's block letters. <laughs> okay. I'm not sure how they could how they could discern either one of those. I don't know. I'm thinking because of the passion and nature of the letter that he wrote it for the for the sake of emphasis, and um, you know, much like we would highlight or underline or bold a font in you know in a word processing. We're writing a letter today or an email. I think he wrote in the large letters to make a point. Hey, this is really me. This is me saying this. This is me, Paul, the guy who visited you. Verse 12, <clears throat> Paul goes on with the same theme that the whole letter is about. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason that they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. So in one verse, Paul clearly communicates what these false believers are doing and why. Circumcision was a huge deal to these um, Hebrew agitators. It was the outward sign distinguishing between Jew and Gentile. And from, from a Hebrew's perspective, the Galatians were Gentiles. There were only two groups of people in the world. Like I grew up in New York believing there were only two kinds of people. There was Italians and those who wanted to be Italians. That's all there ever were, right? There were New Yorkers and the rest of the world. For Jews, it's either you're a Jew or you're a Gentile. So they would certainly see the Galatians as being Gentiles. Now, that line, that distinguishing, that separating line was blurred. It was erased, actually, in the Gospel of Grace. No, no longer were, these, were the Hebrews some separate and elite class that had a corner on the market as far as how to connect with God. The rules had changed. Everybody, was, everybody got to play now. Everybody got to come in. And these Hebrews... <laughs> I'm not happy about that change. So they're working feverishly to reestablish the line. You know, it's not so much that they, that they oppose the Galatians, these Galatian Gentiles coming to faith. They just didn't like the way it was getting done. They wanted it done their way. They wanted it done according to their rules. They wanted it done according to their traditions. And it wasn't being done that way. Change had taken place, and they didn't like to change. Now, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the message of grace, it is, to use a modern term, it is disruptive technology. That's what the gospel was in its day. It was disruptive technology. In the same way that CDs replaced cassette tapes, anybody remember having cassette tapes? I probably still have a box of cassette tapes somewhere. I might even have some 8-track tapes somewhere back home, right? CDs replaced all that. And then the MP3 players, the iPods came on the scene, and guess what? Right? Nobody's using cassette tapes or 8-tracks or hardly CDs anymore. Who goes and buys a CD, right? You get online, you download the song you want, and you put it on your player. 
on your phone, probably, and you're good to go. In the same way that the iPhone revolutionized the cell phone industry, so that it was never the same again, vastly more impacting on, on that culture was the gospel of grace. Not only did it fulfill the law, it permanently replaced it. There's no going back. And this old God, these Hebrew believers, they're not happy about it at all. And they desperately want to go back to the old ways. They want to reinstate the law. They want to resist what's new. That same, that same mindset, that same temperament exists today. And it probably exists more in the church today, using capital C, across denominational lines. That resistance to change is in the church probably stronger than any other aspect of our culture. The church does not like to change. Hey! Usually the culture is on the leading edge of it. And about a decade after something's been commonly accepted in our culture, somebody in the church says, oh, maybe we should try that. And the brave pastor who has the courage to try usually gets crucified in the process and they bring in a new pastor, right? <laughs> i give you a funny example. My brother-in-law, Nadine's brother, Franz, I love this guy, great, just been wonderful brother-in-law all of our lives together. This man has hands of gold. He could build anything. Nadine's father had her own refrigeration and air conditioning business and he was the chief mechanic. When we first dated, I was a helper. It's family business. And my brother-in-law could do anything. I mean, he has, he has built houses from the ground up with his own hands, every aspect of the house. I helped him build the house that he lives in now when, when we were a lot younger than we are now. So he's just, he's just a hands of gold, but he's afraid of technology. He's afraid of computer technology. He doesn't like computers. Computers are not his thing. So a couple of years ago, um, I mean, he would barely use a phone, and he had this old flip phone. Remember when cell phones were like, you know, 10 years old, 10 years ago, and you could flip the phone open? We thought that was a cool, we thought we were Star Trek, right? We could, you know, have our little tricorder, and we could walk around with our flip phones. And he got used to that phone. He knew how that phone worked. He knew all the buttons were. He knew what the buttons did. It fit in his pocket. He had that phone for a long time. His contract was up. He was due for a free upgrade long, long time ago. He liked that phone. And then lo and behold, one day, guess what happens? The phone dies, right? So he goes back to the same store where he bought the phone, and he takes his broken phone out of his pocket, and he shows it to the girl behind the counter. He says, I need a new phone. And she says, oh, what's your number? Looks like, oh, you were due for an upgrade a long time ago. And she begins to show him all the options. He says, oh, we have lots of options for you. He says, no, 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 you don't understand. I want a new phone. I want this phone. I want a new version. I want a brand new phone that is this, this model, exactly like this one. And she said, and she laughed. It's kind of like my daughter does with me. Sometimes shakes her head and says, oh, sir. <laughs> they haven't made that phone in a very long time, right? <laughs> Things have changed. He didn't want to change. He wanted his old phone. That's what the Hebrews want. They want their old phone. They want their old way of doing things. And Jesus came as disruptive technology and changed the way that things were done. And sometimes I think he's up in heaven looking at us and saying, Oh, Tom. <laughs> oh, Tom. So these Hebrew agitators are refusing to upgrade to God's grace preferring to stay with their old circumcision model. 
And Paul states why. He says this is why. They want to impress people and they want to avoid persecution. Why? They want to impress people and they want to avoid persecution. They want to impress their Hebrew friends and they don't want to be persecuted by their Hebrew friends. They, they have a crowd. They have a group. They have a clique. They have a group of people they hang out with and they want to remain on the in crowd because the word is out that Paul lost his mind and these new Christians are crazy. Of course they have to be Jews first. And so they're, they're playing the social game. I don't want to be an outcast. And I probably have some pretty passionate re religious perspectives. We're going to hold on to the old and resist the new. And you know what? This, not, this wanting to impress people and wanting to avoid persecution, you know what drives that? Pride and fear. Pride and fear. It's pride and it's fear that drives that. Pride that we have the real way, we have the real truth, and fear that they're going to be on the out. They're going to be on the outs. They're going to make it on the bad list. They'll become outcasts. I tell you what, pride and fear are two huge weapons of a religious spirit. I should know. I've I've faced it. So many times. So many times on our journey, right, babe? The different places where we go, God uses me <laughs> as an instrument of his disruptive technology. I didn't sign up for this. I can't even say it was my idea. But I, you know, I'm just crazy enough to believe that grace is grace and that freedom is ours and that, oh, my God, we're actually supposed to love one another. And it's astonishing to me how that irritates a religious spirit and stirs up fear. And pride. <clears throat> Have mercy, Lord. Verse 13. Paul continues, Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. In the flesh. So Paul's basically saying, look, no one keeps the law. No one can keep Even those who want to force circumcision on you, they can't keep the law. And the purpose of the law wasn't was never meant so that you could actually keep it. The purpose of the law was to reveal that you couldn't. The purpose of the law was never intended so that we would have people who could jump through more hoops than anyone else and dot more I's than anyone else and cross more T's than anyone else and, and in so doing, elevate themselves above those who don't jump through hoops very well and who aren't the best at dotting I's and crossing T's. The purpose of the law was to realize no one can do it on their own. It was to reveal to us that we would never make it to God on our own. We needed a Savior. We needed someone who would come to us because we would never, ever be good enough to get to Him. The purpose of the law was to reveal our absolute inability to keep the law and reveal to us that, yes, we need grace. It makes me, I'm going to skip this, these next couple of slides on, on Mark 13, let me, on Mark 10. Let me just reference it. In Mark 10, Jesus has an encounter with the rich young ruler. You remember that, right? The, he, he comes, he throws himself at the feet of Jesus, and he says, Master, my whole life I've kept all the law and the prophets. And the scripture tells us Jesus looked at him and loved him. Right? 
Like I just said about myself, sometimes he looks at me, kind of shakes his head and says, oh, Tom. Yeah. That's what I think. He's looking at this rich young ruler, and he loves him. He says, and you've kept the law and the prophets all your life. You've done it all. And he's like, oh, yeah, I did it. And the Lord says, well, you lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor, then come follow me. You know, and so in some reading of this, you think, oh, my God. Look at, the, look at the level of performance and the level of sacrifice that Jesus is requiring. Look how high he sets the bar. Who could do that? I mean, I remember when I came to Jesus, and maybe, I mean, you know what? Yesterday was 41 years since I gave my life to Jesus. I remember it like it was yesterday. And nowhere in that night, when they led me in the sinner's prayer and then prayed that I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, did anyone say to me, you've got to give up everything you own, sell all of it, give it to the poor, and then you could be a member of our prayer group. Nobody told me that. If they had, I would have been like, I don't have much, but dude, I'm not doing that. I'm sorry, it's not how it's going to work for me. And if I told you, look, if you want to come to the Charlottetown Vineyard and be part of this church, the first thing that's required is you have to sell absolutely everything you own and give it to the poor, and then you could become a follower of Jesus. Would you do it? No one would do that. It wasn't the point. The point wasn't that you'd go and do that. Or that the rich young ruler would do it. What was Jesus trying to do? He's like, dude, of course you haven't kept all the law and the prophets. Let me prove it to you. Let me set the bar so ridiculously high that of course you can't. You get the point? We would never be good enough to get to him. And that's what Paul's trying to communicate here about the law keepers, about the people who are so in favor of circumcision. They don't even keep the law. So back to verse 13. These Hebrew agitators want to circumcise the Galatians, these Galatian Gentiles. Why? So they can brag about it. Verse 13b says, Yet they want you to be circumcised, that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. Commentator David Guzik, whose commentating, uh, comment, uh, commentaries have been very helpful to me in this series, he writes this concerning... Uh, that second half of verse 13. He writes, The legalist pretended to be motivated out of concern for the ones they tried to bring under the law. But, but Paul saw through their deception and saw their motive was really selfish, simply desiring the honor and glory of a good showing in the flesh. They wanted the Galatians to become circumcised so that they could wear the submission of these Gentiles is a badge of achievement, even as David had boasted in the 200 foreskins of the Philistines he had killed. So these legalists wanted the allegiance of these Gentiles primarily as a trophy. Do you get it? Do you get it? Man, it was really, it was really cruddy motivation. Not pure at all. It was boasting. It was pride. It was deception. It was foolishness. It was foolish pride. Verse 14. Paul continues, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The word boast is used 55 times in the New Testament, 47 times by Paul. As a Pharisee of Pharisees, Paul knew all too well what it was like to boast in the confidence of human achievement, the adherence of, the ardent adherence to religious dictates and the highest levels 
a professional training and education. And he'd learned the hard way just how they were nothing compared to knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. Right? He, he did all those things. He jumped through all the hoops. He dotted all the I's. He crossed all the T's. He was so passionate he would travel around and kill Christians. And God had to actually arrest him, had to interrupt him as he was off on his way to another city to find more Christians to arrest and have killed. Whew. That's grace. When you're on the road to do evil, when your heart is so bent and so self-righteous that you're traveling to other cities to find people to persecute, and God saves you, he interrupts you, he saves you in the middle of it, of course Paul understands grace. No wonder he's so passionate about grace. He, when, it, when his eyes were open, when the scales fell from his eyes, when he had that spiritual epiphany, he understood it was grace, it was all grace for him. All of his hard work led to nothing. So this is exactly the same thing that Paul's addressing in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. This portion of Philippians could easily be inserted right into this letter to the Galatians. Listen to Paul. He says, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those manipulators of the flesh. You know who he's talking about, right? The same people who were traveling behind him at Galatia, you know, saying all these bad things and wanting to get these other people circumcised. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh, Though myself have reason for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But, those are all his accomplishments, right? He was, he, was, he was the best Jew you could be. Verse 7. But whatever, what gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own, that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes. To know the power of his resurrection. And the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so, somehow, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Powerful part. portion of scripture, just so powerful. If you could have gotten, if you could have arrived by keeping the law, Paul would have been someone who did it. But it never got him there. It turned him into a murdering terrorist. 
And the grace of God rescued him, even him, and us too. Verse 15, Paul writes, Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. So like I said, circumcision is a big issue for these Hebrew agitators. It was the entryway to becoming a Jew and living under the Mosaic law. Paul knew that it was meaningless. He lived through it. He walked it. He had personal experience. And he knew what truly mattered to God. It's not what he had done for God that mattered. It's what God had done for him. He made us new creations. He made Paul a new creation. He's made us new creations. We don't make ourselves new creations. We can't. That's God's work alone. True Christianity, true Christianity, not performance-based Christianity, not rules and religious rules and regulations, true Christianity is all about what God's done for us and not what we do for Him. Do you understand that God doesn't need your service? He does not need your service. I used to pray, oh God, I prayed for my children that they would be saved and that they would serve you all their days. And recently I was convicted to not pray that way anymore. Because I don't think that's what God wants from them. I pray this instead. Lord, I pray that my kids know you and that they walk intimately all the days of their life. They walk intimately with you all the days of their life. And I like this image better. I don't... I don't need a, a master to serve. I need a father to walk with. I need a friend to walk with. I like the imagery better that we get to walk together. And when he does something, if I'm walking with him, guess what? I get to do it with him. Isn't that what Jesus modeled with his disciples? They walked with him. They spent time with him. They shared meals together. They traveled together. And when Jesus did stuff, they were right there. They got to watch him. And sometimes they got to play too. What he wants from you, what he wants from me, and what the church has so miserably missed, is he wants friendship. He wants friends who will walk with him, and who will enjoy life with him, and who will be intimate with him. And if we get to do stuff with him afterwards, that's the overflow of relationship, as opposed to something that, some performance that we have to do to earn our way to maybe God will be happy with us. Do you see the difference? I think for too many of us, for too long, that's been the mindset. If I could just go to one more church meeting, if I could serve on one more committee, maybe God will be happy with me then. And maybe the pastor too. God's already happy with you. He's already happy with you. You're already the apple of his eye. He's delighted over you. He created all that there is so that he could speak you into existence. And there would be a place that was comfortable for you where you and God could meet together. He wants a friend. He wants friendship. He wants friendship with you. That's what the incarnation was all about. Friendship was lost, was broken, was severed in the garden. And then Jesus came. 
And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So that God could have, once again, what He'd always wanted with His creation. Friends. And in that upper room, what did Jesus say? I call you friends. No longer do I call you servants. So the simplest dipstick test I can conceive of when trying to distinguish between grace and law is this. Grace is about what God's done for us. Law is about what we do for God. And though none of us would be, consider ourselves Hebrews or, or Jews by any stretch of the imagination, we have our own version of the law. And how do you know when you're living by the law? When it's all about what you do for God as opposed to grace, which is all about what He's done for us. I have so much passion for this. I feel like some of this is like my life's message to try and change people's mindset and grasp this understanding. Lights my fire. Verse 16. Paul says, Person, me, uh, pers, Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. So now Paul's making his closing statements. I like the way the message communicates verse 16. It says, All who walk by this standard, meaning grace, are the true Israel of God, his chosen people. Peace and mercy on them. Paul is saying that those who live by grace, they're the true Israelites. They're the tr true chosen people, as it were, the truer Hebrews, the true descendants of Abraham. And I'm, boy, I bet that statement just burned Paul's attackers. I'm sure they read the letter. They just had to rub them the wrong way. Verse 17, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Guys, Paul suffered. Man, he truly suffered for the faith. For the faith. His body bore the scars. 2 Corinthians 11. Read all of 2 Corinthians 11, because it tells you just how much he suffered. But let me just give you a brief excerpt from verse 23b to verse 25. This is what Paul writes. I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and have been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. Hey, if I lived in that day, I'd want to say to the to the Hebrew agitators, give the guy a break. Would you back off, man? Just lighten up. Can you see the scars on his body? Galatians, stop giving Paul such a hard time already. He suffered long and hard, and he's done it on your behalf. So that's a side note here. Maybe this will help somebody. Some believe and some others preach that somehow becoming a follower of Jesus exempts us from the trials and tribulations of life. You know, if I just give my life to Jesus, all my problems will be solved, you know. My bank account will be full. I'll have a new car, a beautiful house. Some of you guys have heard that line. It's not true of anyone in this room. You've all been following Jesus for a long time. For me, it's over 40 years. It wasn't true of me. It's not part of your story. That's a lie. And so that when things go sideways, you're thinking, oh God, <laughs> how did I fail you now? Maybe if I just worked harder, right? Can you see that trap? Look, that wasn't Paul's experience. 
Things weren't perfect and rosy. It wasn't rainbows and unicorns for Paul. You ever hear what he went through? I'm grateful that none of us have to go through that. Man, he went through a hard time. It wasn't true of the apostles. Most of them died as martyrs for their faith. It's not been my story. It's not your story. And you know what? It's not what Jesus told us. Jesus told us something completely other. John 16, 33. He writes to his closest friends. He's speaking to his closest friends. And John records, he says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world. Guys, listen to me. With or without Jesus, in this world, we're going to have trouble. We're going to have trouble. Bad things are going to happen. And there's a whole slew of possible reasons why. Sometimes bad things happen and we are the victims of somebody else's foolish choice. Sometimes bad things happen because we're stupid and we do stupid things. Sometimes... I don't know an answer. It's just unknown to me. And bad things happen. Bad things are going to happen. With or without Jesus. The difference is that with Jesus, we have the overcomer. We have the one who promised us that he'll overcome the world and the troubles that we have in it. And not only that, he comes and lives in our heart by the Holy Spirit. So... I'm here to tell you today, if somebody ever lied to you and said, become a Christian and your life will be perfect, I'm really sorry. That's not the truth. Jesus said, in this world you'll have tribulation. But take heart. And so I say to you today, take heart. He's overcome the world. And walk with him, and it may take time, but there will be some overcoming. And there will be justice. Verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. And he, and he closes with Amen. William Barclay wrote concerning this final verse, After the storm and stress and intensity of the letter comes the peace of the benediction. Paul has argued and rebu rebuked and conjoled, but his last word is grace. For him, the only word that really mattered. Paul ends with grace. It's all about grace with Paul. He can wish them nothing greater. I hope that after this letter that the Galatians truly did walk out a grace relationship with God. Honestly, I don't know if they did. I don't, haven't read anything historically that said how they responded to his letter. I do know that Many in the church today, sadly, do not walk in grace. Instead, they walk in some modern-day version of the law. Let it be said of us, let it be said of the Charlottetown Vineyard that we walked all of our days in the grace of God. Let it be said of us that we knew God and we walked intimately with Him all the days of our lives. Let it be known of you and me that we were friends of God, that truly we were His friends. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray this morning that you would reveal to each and every heart, to those who sit here today, to those who will listen to this recording some later date, 
Reveal to each heart the wondrous truths of your grace. Lord, I pray that you would rescue us today. That you would reach down your hand and take hold of us and rescue us from a modern day version of the law. Rescue us, O oh God, from religious rules and regulations. Rescue us from the traditions of men. Rescue us, Lord, from performance-based Christianity. And instead, overwhelm us with your great and lavish love. Instead, overwhelm us with your rich mercy. Instead, oh God, overwhelm our hearts and our minds with your absolutely amazing grace. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes today. That we would know the truth. And the truth would absolutely set us free. Amen? Amen. Nicole and Jesse, you want to come up? We'll have a final song. Before we go into our final song, does anybody have a word of knowledge or anything they wanted to share?